Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we are episode 101. We've broken into the, the next phase. We're speaking with Jonathan LaRiviere and Craig Blackie from Scoot Science. Uh, this is one of our seafood innovation episodes talking about some pretty wild and highly detailed technology. But before we get into that, we need to announce the winners of our 100th episode giveaway. We decided to give away for our 100th episode a seafood tool kit. You know, it's it's got oyster shuckers and lobster shears and, uh, you know, crab crackers and all kinds of good stuff. Seasonings. Yeah, and it's also, it's also going to include a sample pack of seasonings and some really good stuff. If you want to hear the full list of prizes, go back, listen to that episode again. But we want to quickly announce our winners. Maddie, can you talk about how people entered this contest? Yeah. So for this giveaway, we decided to make it as simple as possible for you guys. And anyone that follows us on Twitter was automatically entered into the giveaway. And then we randomly selected three people to be our three winners. That's right. So if you started following us back in, you know, December 2019, then you're already entered. You didn't need to do anything. So Pretty simple, and we have some winners that we're going to announce. We'll start with the let's start with the runners up. We are going to be sending a swag pack and some Neptune fish jerky to Philip Loring, who is one of our followers on Twitter, and uh, she doesn't have her last name, but her name is Anya, and her Twitter handle is at science stagner. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Anya, if you're listening, we're going to reach out to you. Philip, if you're listening, we're going to reach out to you. Get your mailing addresses so we can send you guys some swag and some fish jerky. Congratulations. And our grand prize winner, Justin, do you want to announce grand prize winner? Anyone? And our grand prize first place winner is Oscar Torres. Congratulations, Oscar. We're going to be reaching out to you uh, via Twitter to get your mailing address so we can, or a P.O. box or however you like to receive packages, to send you your sweet prize pack with the seafood cooking toolkit, the spice sample pack, and uh, some other fun swag stuff from GAA. And if you didn't win during this giveaway, have no fear because we are going to have many more giveaways in the future. It's our favorite way to give back to you all because without our listeners, we would be nowhere. And I know we did a whole spiel on the 100th episode, but we really are so appreciative of all of you. That's right. So congratulations, Oscar, Anya, and Philip. Again, we'll be reaching out to you. So keep an eye on your inbox and Twitter for that. And now let's get into the episode. Remember, if you want to get every episode delivered directly to your device so you can listen whenever you want, as soon as they come out, make sure that you are subscribed to Aquademia wherever you get your podcasts. And by now you probably know this, but if you don't, follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you want to reach out to us, do so via email, podcast at aquaculturealliance.org, or send us a message, visit aquaculturealliance.org. Org, go to the education section. Halfway down, you'll see the Aquademia section, and there's a contact us button. And while you're at doing all of those things, you might as well give us a rating and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. That's right. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Jonathan and Craig from Scoot Science, and we will talk to you at the end. 
Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So we're sitting down with Jonathan LaRiviere and Craig Blackie from Scoot Science. Guys, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Scoot Science. So James Wright, the editor of The Advocate, told us that he did a article uh, about you guys in the past. Uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But you guys have been around for a little bit. But this is something that I think is still very new to people. So and, you know, we're highlighting this as a uh, seafood innovations episode because it is a pretty innovative technology. And we're going to get into what it is in a little bit and what you guys do. But first, I want to get to know you. So Jonathan, can you start off, kind of give us your little quick little background on who you are and where you came from? Yeah, I'm an oceanographer and I grew up uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, And, you know, growing up in Rhode Island, I got to spend time jumping on friends' boats all summer long and uh, started surfing when I was in high school in Rhode Island. And, um, And then actually, was uh, when I'd go home from college every summer, um, I got to work in a paleo-oceanography lab. Um, so, you know, I think it was like starting at, yeah, age 18 or 19, I started um, working to reconstruct uh, past ocean temperatures and past ocean conditions in a lab at Brown University. Uh, and that was kind of my introduction to oceanography. So. When I finished um, undergraduate uh, in Virginia, which was, you know, I was in Shenandoah Valley, so not near the water, um, it was sort of my opportunity to, uh, you know, figure out a way to migrate to a coast and, um, you know, get back to get back to a coast and and study the oceans. So, uh, in 2006, I came out to Santa Cruz, California, to continue doing uh, paleoceanographic work. So. Uh, I was reconstructing uh, past ocean temperatures and past CO2 levels. Uh, for, That's one of for, the coolest things I've heard, paleo-oceanographic work. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it was really, you know, it was really cool. I think anytime you talk to, you know, an oceanographer or, um, you know, a field biologist and, and you start to dig in, it, they get some really cool opportunities to be outside and, in the field. So when I was doing paleo-oceanography, I got to um, do things like dive in submarines um, in Hawaii and, uh, and pick fossil coral um, so that we could do um, you know, kind of chemistry on the you know, three million year old cor- corals that, that we were able to you know, get out so of the cool. ocean. Um, and you know, I did, got to do um, a lot of work with sediment cores um, to, to reconstruct past ocean conditions. Um, and it was, you know, while I was writing my dissertation in graduate school that I started using um, some spatial statistics and mapping techniques that were really common on land, um, but not typically used um, to deal with ocean data, um, that I found myself saying, wait a second, like, this is, this is so cool. And this is also the part of oceanography that I want to continue working on. Um, through my career. And so um, it was kind of just as grad school was wrapping up, 
that um, that I started working on Scoot with friends in my graduate school office. So Scoot's co-founder, um, we, we had a couple of co-founders um, um, in the office at the time. Um, Evan Goodwin is our CTO. And um, yeah, we were, I don't know, we worked like 10 feet away from each other in graduate school. So oh, cool. that's, that's awesome. my background. Thanks. And Craig, before we get to you, I do have one question, Jonathan. So you said yeah. uh, surfing in Rhode Island, and I think you mentioned Point Judith earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Matunic yeah. Beach? Yeah. Where... Yeah. Well, so did actually, you, ever, so did you gr- ever take the digger into the rocky sands there? there oh, my God. Well, that's where I was. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how to put that. I, I was, it was when I got out to California that I, that I found out that I thought I was surfing in Rhode Island, but I was horrible, right? <laughs> right, like, right, right, um, right. But yeah, no, I'm t- I'm totally familiar with that. And then we were on the the we were in the East Bay, so the local breaks on the East Bay. Rhode Island's really tiny, so the difference in travel time is probably like eight minutes. But we would say like, ah, <laughs> oh, we got to go to a nearby break. And so if we went to a nearby break, it was Little Compton and the beaches in Newport. But if we were getting adventurous we'd be like ah let's do the long drive and get over to Matunic. <laughs> yeah the yeah. thing about rhode island is if you got to drive more than 20 minutes people pack a lunch which is great um but yeah no i think i still i think i still have scars from trying to surf Matunic and just hitting those the the there's no sand it's all rocks and it's not pleasant yeah <laughs> that's funny yeah um but out here i mean i it was it was like um in rhode island the best waves are you know in the winter so you yeah. come out to California and you can see, wait, like you can surf year round here. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Craig, what about you? What's your story? Uh, well, I did not grow up trying to relive the movie Point Break. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a fisherman by, uh, by passion growing up as a kid. And uh, this was in Ontario where, where I grew up or between Toronto and Detroit. Uh, and so, yeah, I was a, a passionate fisherman and came time to go to school, uh, university and, and decided to do fishery science and continue that on to graduate work. Uh, and then part of that spilled over into aquaculture. So my, my master's work was looking at broodstock development uh, in actually an Arctic char, um, sort of one of a lesser farm species, but uh, still very cool uh, genetics work. And then uh, did a bit of consulting work uh, for the federal government here in Canada, trying to inform on the regulatory regime and how how they should be sort of treating the industry as a whole, given that the particular regions, the provinces were at the time the, the regulators. Uh, and then from there, I took a total 180 turn and moved to the far north of Canada up to Yellowknife, where that uh, TV show Ice Road Truckers is from. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and worked in uh, mining, actually, diamond mining, uh, and oh. doing fisheries-related work to do with uh, a mining operation. And then starting a family and, and realizing that the, the winters are as cold and brutal as the TV portrays them as, uh, we decided to move down to the coast here in British Columbia. Uh, and so the opportunity arose to work for Greed Seafood, uh, who has a fairly uh, large presence here in, in, on the, east, uh, the west coast of Canada. And it was, a, it was a wonderful opportunity and ironically doing very similar things to what I was doing in the, in the mining sector in terms of environmental monitoring, government relations, First Nation uh, relations. And, uh, and yeah, so then that was five years ago, uh, six years ago now. And through that time at, at Grieg working on, I could say the government relations, but the environmental component was really, uh, really interesting and was seemed to be a real frontier for, for the operators that 
you know, they've been putting so much money into technology, but, you know, there were still some fundamental gaps in what to, what to do with it. And that's how I met John, uh, Jonathan and, uh, and, and the group at Scoot. And, uh, and so, you know, when the opportunity came, came up to, to go work uh, with Jonathan, I, uh, I jumped at it and, and here we are today. Cool. So let's talk about Scoot Science. I actually, I went to your website and I love, I love this term. Uh, it says aquaculture's leader in ocean analytics and forecasting, which just sounds, you guys, you, you got all the cool terminology here today in this episode. Pretty excited. So what, what does that mean for people who don't have never heard that term? What ocean analytics and forecasting and how is it connected to aquaculture? Walk us through what Scoot Science is. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think um, you get a little bit of insight to that if I explain the name a little bit, Scoot. So initially, when we started Scoot, we um, were Santa Cruz Ocean Observing Team. And um, in, the, in the oceanography realm, if you see a double O like that, it's a signal, oh, ocean observing. There's someone is collecting data out of the ocean, and then whoever's collecting data out of the ocean is also, uh, you know, doing modeling and and forecasting and trying to understand, um, you know, ocean variability and ocean dynamics. Um, that it's funny that doesn't it it doesn't um, have the same resonance, I guess, outside of the oceanography realm. When I say scoot, people are like, okay, what do you do? <laughs> so. Um, we started using Scoop because it was it it was really too long to say Santa Cruz Ocean Observing Team. So it's like uh, Shield. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we and it's so, just as cool. It yes, I know. Well, you know what happened is that that when like remember when when we got Scoot up and running, um, or it was really like back in 2013. Uh, we, um, you know, so we have a, a bunch of oceanographers that have come together around this idea of oh my goodness it's there's so many challenges in working with ocean data um in part because ocean data is always attached to so it's attached to a point um on the you know kind of on the surface you, you have a latitude longitude and then ocean data is attached to a depth and then it's always changing because really the be you know the best analog for um for ocean data is um, atmospheric weather data, right? And just it happens that, you know, day to day, unless you're um, flying airplanes, you just experience, um, you know, weather conditions um, at, at one height, right? Um, well, it's different for the oceans and different for ocean operators, especially in aquaculture. You're experiencing ocean conditions and ocean dynamics going through the water column wherever you have. Um, you know the the fish, shellfish, seaweed, and um, and that's you know that that data set carries with it just challenges. There, it's just inherent to working with what we'd call multi-dimensional data. So when we started um, working on Scoot, it really came from this place of okay, we know it's hard to work with multi-dimensional ocean data. These are oceanographers, um, uh, as as it's we were like spinning up. We know it's hard. We know we have our own challenges there. Let's get out into the marine operations space and understand how those challenges are manifesting across the marine operations realm, right? So in aquaculture, but also um, in shipping and also in desalination or really anywhere that someone's dealing with infrastructure in the coastal ocean, let's understand 
you know, the challenges that they feel. And then we can form the business model of Scoot around the biggest needs that, that we have. Um, and it was in that, that discovery process. We were just interviewing marine operators, um, all different kinds of marine operators, that it got really tedious to say Santa Cruz Ocean Observing Santa Cruz Ocean <laughs> Observing Team. So we'd say Scoot, and then people just didn't forget. They just, they would, it landed and, and they would, um, you know, check in a year later and say, like, how's Scoot doing now? It like, so it had, it had some sticking power. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, I think that was a good choice. I, I would thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, you know, so, and actually, I guess I'm kind of getting into the origin story for Scoot, right? So we, um, it was in 2013 um, that we, Davin, uh, Ralph Till, and I, started the discovery process to understand okay like where where are the biggest needs around ocean data um and what we found was that and and i think this is really one of the um uh kind of key uh guiding uh findings for scoot science for our team is what we found was that the aquaculture industry um, was doing an incredible job with ocean observing. So the aquaculture industry for years and decades, in some cases, had been um, collecting the same kind of ocean data that you would have an ocean scientist, um, you know, working really hard to collect for some patch of the coast. Um, you know, it's a big undertaking to say, you know what, we're going to have a long-term ocean observing station in this one stretch of coast. And from an oceanographer's standpoint, when you have good ocean observing, then you can you can do good forecasting and you can do good modeling, right? And I, I think that uh, a lot of times when people are talking about the oceans, they'll say, well, you know, uh, the ocean is full of data gaps and we understand more about the surface of Mars than we do the, the ocean floor. And, and that's... That's certainly true, except when you get to the place that that an oceanographer has good monitoring, then there are amazing um, analytics and forecasting that you can do that really do look similar to the way that we do weather forecasting on land. And we found in our discovery that the aquaculture industry has been doing an incredible job because for years, you know, uh, the industry has had temperature sensors and oxygen sensors and trained their technicians in um, really sophisticated plankton identification. Um, and so that's where our team was able to say, wait a second, there's, there's a group that's feeling severe ocean events, but largely considering the extreme events unpredictable. But then if you're in an oceanographer space, you'd say, well, if I had really good ocean observing, I can probably start to increase the lead time for those events, I can probably get good analytics um, to help them understand ocean variability and ocean change. And that's the value proposition that we were able to take to the aquaculture industry and say, you know what, you have amazing ocean observing already. Let's work with oceanographic tools and turn that into um, better awareness of what's kind of you know, coming down the pike. So what Scoot is doing is, I'm just making sure I have this right, because I'm learning along with the listeners. So Scoot Science, you guys come with all of this technological knowledge, data knowledge, research knowledge, and you're helping aquaculture facilities apply it to their operations and helping them like improve efficiencies and 
predictability of different things. Is that right? Yeah, the way the way we describe it is um, that Scoop works with a farm to unify all the ocean observing data, all the IoT data that they have coming in, especially now because I think there's you know there's really neat hardware solutions coming out. Um, it sort of seems like continuously there's new hardware coming out for the aquaculture industry. And it's there's a little bit of hyperbole here, but I, I often say like any piece of hardware that a farm's putting in the water now is a new IoT platform, um, which is really cool for describing the conditions on a farm. Um, but the lay of the land is that you have a really fragmented... Um, set of data streams coming in at each farm where you have monitoring, where there's a new dashboard for this hardware uh, product and a new dashboard for that sensor. And and we find a lot of farms are running like um, you know several different camera systems and now running on top of that several different uh, machine learning and AI systems for pellet recognition or trying to get fish behavior. And so it's just this... Um, you know, really fragmented landscape um, that Scoot's been able to come in and say, well, we're hardware agnostic. What we will do with the farm is work to get a good understanding of the ocean conditions and unify all that data that's internal to the farm with the surrounding oceanography and the surrounding meteorology. And that approach gives farms an opportunity to... um, you know, increased lead time for extreme events like large temperature swings, or low oxygen events. You can increase the lead time um, through forecasting, but then also by having everything unified um, and really backfilling the data, because like I said, the, the farms tend to um, not be new to this idea of collecting ocean data, right? They've been doing it for, for a long time. Um, and when we backfill the data, we can work with the farms to go into the unified data set and understand, well, how did you respond to extreme events in the past um, that, you know, that resulted in mortality? Um, how did the ocean variability and the ocean change affect your, um, you know, your yield? Let's dig in together um, and get that, that bigger context for what's been affecting the farms and then as you start to change your behavior and the way that you react to extreme events, we can actually document it and dig in and see with you, was it working? Like when, when you started you know, having managers respond um, with particular mitigation for this kind of threshold and oxygen, did it actually result in, um, uh, you, you know, Really, ultimately, did it respond and, and increase survivability and increase quality um, of, of the fish that survived? So the, something that we talk about on the show all the time is that the, this, is, this industry is so receptive to innovation. And that's been super useful for you guys, right? Like, that's, that's kind of where you're, you're getting all this extra information. Like you were saying, they got all these different new hardwares and stuff that are, that are giving out different in, data points and different information that you can use. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and, Craig, and you know, I, I'd say to Craig, when Craig was at Grieg, he was part of the team. There's a few people at Grieg. So Dean, uh, Dean Trithui, um, Liam Peck, uh, Craig, uh, Kirsten came on later, but, but Kirsten, um, what's Kirsten's last name? Uh, Negrin. Negrin. They, you guys were sort of at the f- 
forefront of I I would say like really progressive in how you're working with the data stream. So you could kind of speak to that a little bit. Yeah, no, for for sure. I mean, as I'm sure your previous guests have talked about, when you have these extreme events, you know, it's a pretty emotional experience when there's there's a, a loss going on in the farm and you know the farmers their their job is is to keep animals alive and happy and healthy and growing and and they have so much invested into it they're so connected with those what's going on in the farm when you have a an event going on it's like how do you how do you capture you know the response and is is there is there kind of a sense of panic in, in responding to it? And, and what are people doing? What, what actual steps were taken during the event to manage it? And then again, going back and looking back in previous events, it was notebooks. It was people just trying to, you know, uh, cope with a, with a very rapidly escalating situation and valuable information ends up being lost in those. And it's not specific to Greek. All producers have experienced this. The risks are different in different parts of the world. But to some degree, everyone has experienced something like this. And so as an exercise then to look back on lessons learned and how do we improve things going forward into the future, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there was this there was this gap. And, and so Scoot comes in and, and now we can start critically evaluating with the operator and how what's working what isn't working how can we improve things and kind of kind of visualize it almost like a full circle you know you see it right through to the mitigation options and then ideally you get tighter and tighter to ultimately avoidance of the of a mortality event is is the goal probably unrealistic to achieve it a complete avoidance but we've seen with with you know earlier um uh, efforts to 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 mitigate and refine mitigation protocols that that it does work. It does alleviate things. And you see some, some very quick returns on, on the work that you're doing. And, and it's, no, it's a really positive and exciting kind of path to go down. Have you seen some of the facilities that are utilizing this consolidating kind of the equipment? Uh, Jonathan, based off what you were saying, a lot of these facilities already had some good technology for tracking a lot of, a lot of aspects of whatever it is that they need to gather, information they need to gather. Have you noticed people who have been using your product consolidating the equipment? Because I, you know, on your website, it shows this really neat looking dashboard, right? That's tracking all sorts of different things. I'm assuming, and like Sean said, the industry is really receptive to innovations. I would, for me personally, if I was the owner of a offshore net pen facility, that I would want to consolidate all of my equipment to make something as easy as possible, but also also still gathering the information that I need. Is that typically what a lot of do you see facilities really utilizing, seeing the benefit that they can kind of get rid of having you know a hundred apps for a hundred different things? It seems easier to just have one or or few. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's some there's some some nuance i guess that 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 i'd bring out of that question in that um uh i guess starting with you know our scoots first customers are in salmon um and so partly the discussion that we're having right now is kind of oriented towards well what do we see in some of the major and and the work that we've done with customers it's all with um um greek we can we can talk about publicly but we've done other work with other top 10 salmon producers um i'll just i'll leave it in that vague top 10 salmon producers yeah, i'm sure a lot of our um, listeners by that phrase our listeners can probably get an idea of who some of those companies are so, yeah so um 
you know, kind of what we've done is looked to those companies to say, okay, well, um, th this is probably going to be at the forefront of um, uh, data collection with respect to kind of the amount of data collected, the continuity that you have data um, being collected. Um, and that we hope, you know, by working initially with the top 10 salmon producers that we can start to learn about a standard and, and set up, I mean, kind of a mix of standards around data transparency, standards around um, data quality control, um, and actually, you know, working with the analytics that come out of all these data streams. Like, let's set that up establish that with um, uh, with the salmon producers first and then take the best learnings from that over to frontier parts of aquaculture, right? So other fin fish and then shellfish, shellfish and seaweed. seaweed yep. Yeah, and and the I think, so, so I want to have that context out there first. So largely this discussion is around salmon um, initially. Um, and that's where you do see, you know, that's that's when you see sort of a farm manager is dealing with, you know, 15 screens in front of them. Right. They got, they got the cameras <laughs> right. in the cages and everything. Yeah. It's not, not yeah. too much of a need for an unfed species like mussels that are just kind of hanging on a, on a rope to, to need that kind of stuff as much. So, well, sense. not, well, but the, well, there is need in, in those other parts of aquaculture because I, I would say what we've learned is, um, you know, every species, every type of aquaculture is dealing with, um, uh, you know, kind of r you're running your business on top of a dynamic ocean and the production of, uh, you know, whatever the biology is that, that you're dealing with, the production is inextricably linked to the ocean conditions. Mm -hmm. And so there's just different needs when you get into shellfish right. um, around understanding the playing field, um, you know, where you're growing the shellfish. But yeah, it looks different. Shellfish looks different than... Um, uh, than salmon and um, and so I'd say around salmon initially though yeah I don't I'm I haven't seen any shellfish groups yet that are running continuous video feeds right. for example but definitely shellfish groups that have temperature loggers that stay with um, you know from being in the water all the way through um, to harvest and actually market like there are some really cool temperature records that that come out of the shellfish industry um but so so one thing i'd say is like okay well if we orient around salmon and then think about the technology adoption in salmon one one thing that we've found and justin this is to your question about consolidating um you know consolidating equipment so it's more efficient um, mm -hmm. um what we found is that um the farms end up in a tough position when all of the data that describes their operations are tied to some decision about the probe that's being used to monitor oxygen, or all of the data is tied to, you know, a particular manufacturer's suite of solutions. Um, because sometimes the manufacturers that are doing hardware and giving kind of a complete consolidated equipment solution, um, they have it really dialed for some part of the world, but not another part of the world. They're really well suited for the conditions, um, let's say conditions in Western Canada, but less suited for conditions in the playing field 
um, in Eastern Canada, right? It's just, there's, there's, um, I don't think there's a one size fits all for the hardware okay. for the equipment that you use. And the trick is that, um, if all of the data is tied to a hardware decision, then for a, for an aquaculture um, producer, it's like you don't really get to make an easy, flexible decision that's the best solution for your farm in that spot for the management team that's on the water. You start to have to figure out, ah, like what's going to be the downstream effects of, all right, if we start consolidating in this way, can we handle all the data now being a part of that platform? And if all the data is a part of that platform, then through the organization, let's say you're dealing with a top 10 producer, can we say that our team that is, you know, working on sales uh, is going to be able to access the data they need to access to actually get utility out of all this observing and production data on the farms? And I think that that is just, it's kind of too much. It's, it's been, it's proved you know, to, to, um, make companies less nimble, it's been harder to access data and ask the questions you want to ask out of the data. So I think like we do see some consolidation and we also are seeing some pushback on the consolidation mm -hmm. because farming groups are like, Oh, we got, we got kind of shuttled into the system that's supposed to be end to end from what's happening in the water to what's happening kind of in the boardroom. And that isn't, um, that's not yet delivering you know, to all the needs that they have. That makes yeah, sense. I would just add from the, from the producer's standpoint, again, when I was with, with Greg, I mean, part of it too, and it's to the, the, the fragmented data stream part of the, the conversation and why the consolidation is so valuable uh, it, is that you're looking at a single data stream coming in and you're correlating that with some outcome. Uh, and, and so you're, you're, it's easy to jump to conclusions on, you know, well, it's because of oxygen that this happened. It's because of the next thing. And you're looking at them in silos rather than pulling them all together. There's a, a famous statistics quote, you know, correlation isn't causation. And so to have, have a more full picture of what the ocean's doing around the farm, what's happening on the farm specifically, both inside and outside of the pens, then you can start getting and, and answering those, uh, those questions about what, you know, how can we uh, increase survivability? How can we increase the growth potential of, of you know, our animals at the farm? So what it comes down to, to simplify this as much as possible, is you are able to take data points and help forecast and potentially predict ocean events that could affect fish farms. Is that accurate? Is that accurate yeah. for me to say? So that when is, we're, that, well, yeah, yeah, I know it's, I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible. Totally, Sean's yeah, no, thing totally is boiling accurate. things down to one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, yeah, that's my favorite thing. I, if I can get it down to one sentence, that I have enough of a an understanding that I think I can continue a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when we say uh, when you say ocean events, uh, you've mentioned that a couple times. We, we're talking things like extreme temperature changes, algal blooms, what, what kind of events uh, are you looking to try and forecast for? Yeah, I think, and, and I'd kind of back out again and say like, okay, you take an oceanographer and you give an oceanographer a stretch of coast that has good ocean observing, um, what can an oceanographer do with that? Well, an oceanographer can drive um, physics-based ocean models that do a really good job of describing um, 
the mixing of waters and the way water interacts with the overlying winds and the precipitation and the sunlight. And so you get to in it's kind of it's not a brand new technology just from first principles with oceanography you can get to um, good forecasting and understanding of um, uh, the temperature swings right so and we think about temperature swings um, from kind of two standpoints one is you get these extreme temperature swings in eastern Canada um, and in really far northern waters um, called super chill mm-hmm. super chill is a phenomenon um, where the surface waters and waters a little bit deeper than the surface get so cold um, that the the salmon die um, and it's um, it's been for the industry um, at times like an existential threat because it's been hard for the industry to say or at least in those regions what's happening here and how often is it going to happen and what's the severity of this kind of temperature swing? Well, that's the kind of work an oceanographer, if you have good ocean observing, an oceanographer can help you understand the severity and frequency of extreme temperature swings like that. But temperature swings also mean that, you know, for growing salmon, sometimes you end up with warm waters that are far outside the optimal conditions for, um, uh, for growing fish. And you can start to work with farms to to give them forecasting for warm temperature events. So uh, so we do temperature swings. The same is true for oxygen. A lot of like oxygen um, levels are tied in large part to the water masses around the site and mixing mm-hmm. uh, at the site. And that's the same thing. You can do good forecasting of um, oxygen changes once you have forecasting of how waters are mixing and, um, uh, and, and you have a sense of, um, uh, you know, how water masses interact with each other. So we can do oxygen. And now with plankton, like plankton's a little bit tricky. If you step back to the, to the, you know, go back to the oceanography field, well, how's forecasting on plankton? And I would say that uh, species-specific plankton forecasting is is coming. It's, it's it's groups have made get excited gr- people it's coming. it's it's coming but i think that you know as an oceanographer there's no way that i would stand up and say like we the field can do species specific plankton forecasting full stop that is not the case i don't care what anyone's telling you plankton is really challenging to work with but we've seen really successful um uh uh, uh plankton forecasting and modeling um, from a whole a whole bunch of different approaches um, in the ocean sciences realm that haven't been applied to um, to the aquaculture world yet and so I think that there's um, it's not exactly low-hanging fruit but there is um, a lot of distance that we can travel just just off of the the current state of plankton forecasting in ocean sciences and then some of the work that you see around forecasting um, uh, population dynamics uh, has proved to be really promising um, for plankton forecasting in the ocean, and so I like like population I of can, of species. Yeah, that and eat that's kind of yeah, that's kind of the, I cut you off. Yeah, <laughs> no, that, I mean that's kind of the trick, right? Is like not all plankton is bad, and right. you know when you have a plankton bloom, it's it's uh, you know you have to look at well. Um, in in the bloom, what are my thresholds for different plankton? And you know, actually, what if a little bit of plankton is okay, but then we hit 
you know, um, toxicity when it exceeds a certain threshold. And that's, that's challenging um, to, to um, untangle. And I think, um, but I think that I, I think it's coming. Um, and so that's what, that's cool. you know, the team at Scoot is really like, I, you know, as uh, at the forefront as you can be around plankton forecasting. Um, the other, cool. the other work though, that for us, that's a part of these ocean risks are strong subsurface currents. Well, yeah, an oceanographer can, can help you understand strong subsurface currents and, um, long-term changes. I think that like you step back and you look at our team, we have this, we have a strong set of oceanographers, a strong set of, uh, software engineers that, that know how to work with marine spatial data. That's their specialty. Um, and then a strong set of agroeconomists. And the agroeconomists have given um, our customers an opportunity to say, all right, well, let's look at, on the one hand, we're going to look at how the ocean variability and ocean change has been affecting your sites and help with um, lead time for these extreme events so that your farm managers can save fish, right? And they can increase that survivability. On the other hand, if we step back and start to take the long-term um, uh, lens and look at the operations, we, we can um, kind of help the farms get a really good understanding of the frequency and severity of these risks of the ocean variability and the ocean change where they, where they farm. So that really for the first time, time the farms are able to go out into the world of underwriting and finance and say, you know what, this, is, this describes the risk we feel at our sites. Um, and, um, and this is what we anticipate is going to be happening at our sites. And that's rooted in to understand that risk. You really have to be able to understand those ocean dynamics. Well, you answered my question that I had probably 10 minutes ago about having all this data can be so useful to, I mean, if you can go back year after year and look at trends to be able to look at, are things seasonable, seasonal? I just think the more data that we collect and then start looking at geographical areas and things of that nature, it's just so useful. And it'd be really interesting to see, you know, as more and more data is being collected and all those things I talked about, like geographical area and seasonal versus whatever, to be able to kind of even go a step further in even be able to predict without the data, just say, oh, we're coming into blank season and we need to be aware of that. Now let's look at the data and see if it's showing us the same thing it did last year. Yeah. And that that reminds me, Justin, I feel like the first thing that comes to mind when I hear weather events or extreme weather events is, of course, climate change. And I'm sure that this comes up for you and might even be coming up for you more and more. But I know you mentioned that you really got Scoot Science going in 2013 or so, but you can do predating research on what the ocean was like pr prior to 2013, which is what you did in your research, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. So have you noticed with any trends or like heightened frequency of certain events that an average person might not necessarily think is linked to climate change, but you knowing what causes algal blooms and plankton blooms, like it might signify that there's an increase in these sort of events. Yeah, I think if yeah, if I follow the the question, like kind of what 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 kinds of things are happening that we wouldn't expect. Um, yeah, so I I can say you know there's a great example. Um, well, great examples in um, 
uh, in aquaculture because so much aquaculture happens really, really close to the coast, right? And when you get really, really close to the coast where you have these nooks and crannies in the coast and fjords and bays and inlets where the orientation um, of the land is changing, even if you travel just a little ways up the coast, then you can end up with all different kinds of um, uh, 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 shoreline changes um, that that affect the wind, right? Um, and the way the the ocean interacts with the wind has a lot to do with directionality. Um, and and one of the things that you see in a warming climate is um, in the overlying uh, atmosphere, you can see uh, changes in the strength of winds coming from different directions. And in some parts of the ocean, and I mean on a really fine scale, small spatial scale, you can end up with an increase of winds um, that upwell more cold water than you used to see. And so it's like warming climate that can result in colder temperatures because the winds from a certain direction have gotten more frequent and stronger and they upwell water. So, and, and for listeners, if, if you're not familiar with upwelling, the idea of upwelling is that if the wind um, is able to displace water in the surface of the ocean, then you have to fill that void somehow and it gets filled with deeper underlying water. So if wind is able to displace water, then you have cold water rise up to the surface um, and the surface water, um, it actually holds the characteristics of whatever was upwelled. So on the one hand, you can you can get um, uh, these changes where, uh, you know, because the wind directions, uh, you know, are taking new patterns because of a warming climate, um, you can get colder, small scale waters. And that affects, you know, if you're growing shellfish, for example, it can take longer for shellfish to get to full size. It affects the, um, you know, it affects the, the conditions for, um, for salmon. And it's not, it's not as simple as just saying like, okay, you can just look at this, um, uh, this one site and have a temperature record from one site and understand, okay, under a warming climate, we expect that site's going to be getting warmer and warmer and warmer. It's not like that. You actually have to understand the whole overlying context of the atmosphere, and you have to understand what's going on in the surrounding oceans. Because, um, you know, when I talk about this multidimensional data, that's, that's kind of complex. Well, one of the things that can happen is a water mass at depth can have conditions um, that are harmful to um, whatever you're growing at the surface. And so you can have sites where, you know, there's low oxygen water sitting just below the site. And the fish tend to be okay because that low oxygen water doesn't usually mix up to the surface. If it doesn't mix up to the surface, then, um, then you're not stressing them um, with um, adverse conditions. But depending on how the ocean conditions change, depending on changes in upwelling or changes even in the tides, because we have such variability in um, you know, impact of tides on coastal waters, sometimes you can take that harmful water up to the surface um, and, and set up conditions um, that you, you, know, you could have done forecasting for, you could have looked at, you could have seen in the long-term trends if you take that, that bigger oceanographic and atmospheric context. And that's that's the kind of work that we do um, on our team. I love, you just went through a lot of things, but the one thing that I wanted to pull <laughs> out because I, I love this, the idea of warming temperatures 
leading to colder temperatures. Um, Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, in that we, you can see I'm treading lightly when I say that because I don't want to be on the record for saying. No, no, no. Riviere says no. Uh, <laughs> warming Headlines. climate will cool off the ocean. No, no. But just, I think that's were... such a good point because there it just shows that there's so much nuance to all of this. Right. Like there, minute changes happen in certain areas, and then they cause other changes that might be a little bit bigger in other areas. Well, it's it's climate, not weather, right? So there's a lot more. That's when we're looking at it from a, a quote layman's point of view. It reminds me of when I used to work at New England Aquarium. We had a, a thing called Magic Planet, which is from Global Imagination. It's a, a spherical projector that has a projector underneath it. Yeah, yeah, you know what it is. So it, it's super cool. You can look at different map models and stuff. And I don't, I don't know how accurate it was at the time, but I knew that it was a really awesome visual teaching tool when I worked at the aquarium in education. And um, we had a model that showed, like, you know, if the overall temperature, you know, went up by, average went up by however many degrees, this is what happens. And you see the earth, like, basically just turned to snow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they used to say, oh, like, yeah, it's the future with global climate change is probably more uh, day after tomorrow than it is Mad Max. So <laughs> it was like, it was just really interesting to kind of look at that model and be like, try to show people how how more complex this issue is than they really think. So that's just what it reminded me of. I thought always thought that. It's, it, you know, when I think about, I, you know, our, our team pays a lot of attention to, um, you know, well, what's, what's on the cutting edge of uh, ocean, I mean, especially oceanography. Where we're, all right. What's on the cutting edge for aquaculture? What's on the cutting edge for oceanography? Um, you know, what's cutting edge uh, for, for understanding um, global change right now. And I think that what we find is, well, you know, most of, it's just kind of because of human spatial scales, most of hu the interaction you get between humans and the oceans happens really close to the coast. Mm -hmm. um, and it just happens that really close to the coast, it's some of the most challenging conditions to sample in the long term mm. um, and so yeah there's big data gaps in the middle of the ocean basins in part because they're huge right but when you get close to the coast um you can end up with really violent challenging conditions uh to to navigate where dangerous conditions um that make it hard to sample and the the trick is when you're looking at ocean change and ocean variability um, those spots where most humans are interacting with the ocean that are hard to sample, they are some of the most complex um, stretches of ocean to deal with because you have changing bathymetry and, like I mentioned, you know, coastlines, um, especially up in BC, right? I mean, or, or, well, anywhere that you're growing salmon, it's like, you know, some of the best places to grow salmon are, um, uh, you know, the nooks and crannies of the higher latitude coasts um and it's it's one of the hardest parts of the planet to start to put numbers on the ocean change and and ocean variability now along with that you i'd say the playing field for growing salmon it's all it's also part of the planet that you see the most change happening right so for the, the oceans on the one hand take up an overwhelming amount of warming compared to the rest of the, well, we're talking about um, 
part of the planet where you see the most warming. And that's like the ocean is taking this one two hit, an ocean change. And that on the one hand, ocean's been taking up overwhelmingly uh, the majority of warming um, that, that you see um, on the planet relative to land. It's taking up a huge amount of heat. Um, and that's affecting currents and water masses and long-term trends in uh, oxygen saturation and you know um, and, and also there are chemical changes that are happening from um, you know changes in the overlying atmosphere now I think it's been amazing to work with the aquaculture industry and see that um, you know that change is felt in a like on a visceral level, right? So you, or it's really, I think anyone that spends time on the ocean, when you start talking to them about like, oh, tell me about, you know, tell me about um, what it used to be like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and you get, well, it was way different. I don't know what's happening. Like I'm seeing exotics come in. Like there are, we're fishing for warm water fish here. We've mm-hmm. never seen that before, you know, and that, um, and, and that's because fundamentally, I think that oceans are on the front lines of climate change. Um, and so, and ocean operators, I mean, on the front lines of climate change. And that's where, you know, I was mentioning the team at Greek that, that, um, where, where Craig and I first met, like, that's where you get, like, these, there is some really progressive thinking going on with the fish farming group saying, like, we see this change happening. We need to understand how fast it's happening. And then we need to understand, okay, how are we going to allocate our resources moving forward if the change is happening at this pace? And of all of our sites, which sites are going to be most vulnerable to an extreme event and which sites are actually, you know, kind of well suited to handle, um, you know, a little bit of a shock from, um, you know, from a, from a big oxygen event or, you know, where Craig, you talk often about the challenge. Maybe you could speak a little bit to like how we're looking at the challenges of a, of a fish farmer for survivability. Yeah. I mean, uh, trying to think, Example: well, Salmon farming is the prime example. You know, you're asking a group of people to raise a crop of animals that, in nature, what have 10% at best survivability, and you're asking farmers to keep 90% of those animals alive through to harvest. And yeah, you know, sure, you've controlled predation largely, and you give them like unlimited food supply falling from the sky. But you know, you can't move away from those challenging ocean conditions. You got to manage those, and, and like in the wild, the fish just swim away and we'll find better, better conditions. But you can't do that here, and so it's you know this fundamental thing: of how do you do better? How do you, you know, with with the mitigation equipment? I mentioned it earlier. You know, is it is it a matter you need oxygenation? Is it tarps? Is it, you know, better aeration, uh, or just timing of things? You know, sort of fundamentally down to production to timing, and, and when you stock your farms, when you harvest. You know these kinds of things. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting challenge that uh, that uh, you know, like you say, the, the producers are pretty um, forward looking and, and progressive on on how to tackle it. So, in the interest of of time, uh, I do have one question that I want to get out there, and usually we save this one for the end, so this actually works out really well. But what is the what does the future hold for Scoot Science? Yeah. So for us, um, you know, we've we've been working with um some some of the biggest producers um um globally but 
primarily in British Columbia. Um, we've some done, done some work in Eastern Canada, and we'll continue um, to um, work with customers in Eastern Canada. Um, and then I think for our team, you know, we're really excited to start to dig into uh, this ocean variability, ocean change, um, and and forecasting in other parts of the world. So we kind of hanging in the salmon world. Um, uh, we just launched officially launched the Sea State platform that um, that you know we had been doing so much development of Sea State with our our first like our anchor customer for Sea State was Greg, and we just spent so much time with the team at Greg trying to learn about um, the way that this tool was going to be most useful, um, and, and also to set yeah, I. I, I guess I'd want to get this message out there too. What we found is just huge motivation um, from the farms um, in that they want to be able to share the ocean observing data that they have with the local stakeholders. And it's just been, yeah, it's, it's a tough, uh, tough ask, like tough lift um, based on what I was describing before because it's pretty complex data. While I think that a big um, piece of the work that, that we were doing um, with the team at Grieg is trying to um, set things up so that you could actually share the ocean observing out with um, uh, local stakeholders, so First Nations and and um, local community, and you could you can actually say, hey, there's really good ocean observing going on here at the farms, and we are a part of this this coastal community, and we see it as a service to get the um, you know, kind of get the awareness out and make it um, publicly available on how the temperature's changing and the oxygen's changing and, and what we're seeing um, along our coast. So so we've been doing that for a while, and now we have uh, a, this, what I would call commercially viable uh, uh, sea state that we got to launch a couple of months ago. And we are uh, just beyond excited to work with um, farms and other parts of the world um, to use C-State to, to get some constraint on ocean risk and ocean change for aquaculture. So we'll do that um, over this next year. Um, we actually just, uh, this I know this podcast will air a little bit later, so actually just today we closed um, uh, for us a, a pretty big round of um, funding. Uh, for Scoot, so right. um, I know, yeah, Congrats. we're really happy. We have, yeah, Super we have, exciting. yeah, we've had an incredible team of investors uh, working with us. Um, uh, you know, since I guess the first investors started working with us in um, uh, 2017, and um, and then we just uh, closed a round of funding that was led by um, uh, Third Kind Ventures in New York. Um, and uh, Shanna Fisher and, and, and Alex uh, Binkley there are just um, so supportive of the, the work that we've been doing. And, and also um, First Star Ventures was also really active with us as we started getting up and running. And so the team at First Star and Third Kind have said like, okay, we see huge utility in the work Scoot's doing, not just for aquaculture, um, but more broadly for marine operators that are working to deal with ocean change and ocean risk. And so the future for Scoot is, um, you know, working, you know, work with other finfish, get into frontier aquaculture, and also take the same kind of modeling uh, that 
is describing ocean risk for aquaculture over to other marine operations space and say, well, you know, when we have really good data transparency, then we can get some good constraints on ocean risk. And when we have good constraints on ocean risk, we can actually direct um, really the the best practices and the best interactions um, between humans um, and the coastal ocean. And I think that's that bigger picture for us is just um, something that, that our team is really passionate to be working on in the coming years. Fantastic. Well, we are just about at our time. Lots of, lots of information in this. If anyone has any questions about anything that they heard you guys talk about today, what is the best way for them to get in contact with Scoot? So most efficient, you can tweet at us. Um, so at Scoot Science, um, you can. So uh, that's our tweet at us and we could get back to you right away. Uh, but you can go to our website um, and uh, email us through info at scootscience.com. Okay, great. We'll have Perfect. that information in the show notes for sure. Yep. Justin, Maddie, anything yeah. else? No? All right. John, Jonathan, Craig, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, get out there before we wrap things up? Oh, man. Well, I want to thank you all for having us. Oh, uh, thank you for joining and, us. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. So thanks for having us. And I think uh, maybe the the other thing we should put out right now is, um, you know, so our, our team is growing at a pretty rapid clip. So if anyone listening here has an interest in um, ocean data, um, you know, and, and um, really working to put numbers on this ocean variability, ocean change, and, and using it to facilitate best practices in aquaculture, um, we would love to hear from you. Um, we also, like I said, have um, a team of agroeconomists that, that is you know, helping our customers um, uh, hold this data um, in a really powerful and strong way so they can go and um, you know, go into the finance space and say, like, this is how we operate. There's transparency around it. And this is the risk that we hold and how we're going to manage the risk. So um, so also, if you are in the econ world uh, and thinking about um, uh, ocean change and, and uh, you know, sustainable seafood, uh, then uh, we'd love to hear from you, too. Awesome. ScootScience.com. Make sure you check it out. Link in the show notes. Well, I think that's about it. So Jonathan LaRiviere Le and Craig Blackie from Scoot Science, thank you guys so much for joining us. Really cool conversation and really appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, can't wait to see, you know, what's coming in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, thank you. Folks, that was our conversation with Jonathan LaRiviere and Craig Blackie from Scoot Science. As always, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you learned something, probably a lot of things. This was a I very, learned a lot of things. There's a, we were really in the weeds in this episode. It was fantastic, um, and so we really appreciate all of that insight that Jonathan and Craig brought to us about Scoot Science and everything that they're doing. And if you want to learn more, make sure that you check out the show notes because we have a ton of links in there where you can learn more about Scoot Science, their website, and also the article that the Global Aquaculture Advocate wrote about them a few years back. Yeah, And if you're looking to work with them, they're looking for mm, um, some more too. team members too. So remember to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you get your podcasts so we can have every new episode delivered directly to your device so you can listen to it whenever and wherever you want. Follow us on social at Aquademia Pod. Send us an email if you want to reach out to us, podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. 
or fill out our online form. Go to aquaculturealliance.org, education tab, halfway down, aquademia section, and there is a contact us button. And be sure to leave us a rating and review. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye. Bye.